Any of you have parents that shook the Ferris wheel when you would ride it? Just me? Ferris wheel's the scariest ride at the fair, but none of you guys knew that. Right? When I see this, that's the thing I think of. I'm like, oh man, that brings back childhood memories. We're, we're in this series called Don't Get On The Ride. How many of you guys don't like roller coasters? You don't like scary rides? You don't like those things? How many of you have people that make you ride them? Yeah, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm one of those people that would make you ride them. Uh, I love them. I think it's really, really fun. Uh, you know, but there's this phrase in my household. I shared this last week um, that we say it has nothing to do with an actual roller coaster. It's a metaphor. Uh, and it's this. Just because someone is on the roller coaster doesn't mean you have to get on the same ride. That's the phrase that we use. And we use this for lots of things. We do. There's so many moments where somebody will will be engaging in such a way and I'll find myself getting wrapped up in it. And all of a sudden the worst of me starts to come out. Or I, I enter into the same swirl of just crazy or whatever the thing is. And all of a sudden my wife will look at me like, Ryan, don't get on the ride. Like just as like this reminder. And I look at her and I'm like, thank you for your opinion. You know, like, ah, so hard. It is. It is. It's hard. I say the same thing though. You know, one of my kids can be angry or frustrated. And, uh, you know, and when you're angry and frustrated like anybody, they, they can sometimes be frustrating and they can sometimes be disrespectful when they act out of that. And I can find myself going, how dare you and what? And starting to get wrapped up in this swirl of it all and trying to engage them out of that same thing. But I don't have to get on the ride. You ever have that moment when you engage your kids and you end up exhibiting the same behaviors you're telling them to not do because of how you're engaging them? And you're like, when did I get on this roller coaster? When did I get on the same ride? Like, how did this happen? That happens to me sometimes. It's hard not to get on the ride. But we don't have to. don't have to engage it that way. You can be in a workplace, right? Where someone can be pessimistic or overly negative and all of a sudden you find yourself where you weren't this way a week ago and now the next week you're suddenly like, yeah, everyone is terrible. And yeah, nobody does understand. And yeah, this place is the worst. And it starts to impact how you show up to your own life and how you perceive things. Or maybe there's people at your work that gossip. And you join them. There's people at your work that backbite, or maybe somebody undermines you or takes credit for something you did, and now you want to lash back out at them, and all of a sudden you're on the very same roller coaster, you're on the very same ride, and you're like, I didn't want to be on this in the first place. How did I get here? How do I not do this? You don't have to get on that ride, but it's easy to. Or what about in the social arena or in the political arena? Someone or a group of people begins hurling insults or tearing down and opposing point of view or something like that, standing in a place where it's like, because I'm right and all these other people are stupid and you suddenly find yourself going, how dare you? And you launch back into the same thing and it's a shouting match and then all of a sudden everybody's just hugging it out and pe- it, that doesn't happen, right? All of a sudden it's intense and angry and people's feelings are hurt. See, you can get on that same ride. Your life can become filled with more and more anger and you can begin to believe that the people who are different than you are dumb and that you are more right and self-righteous and that they're bad somehow, or you can do it differently. You can find a meaningful way to engage, but not get on the same ride. And I think that's really hard. I do. That's the point of this series. The series is not each week unpacking, here's a ride we get on. This week is unpacking, there's lots of rides we, or the series is unpacking, there's lots of rides that we get on. There's lots of moments that are going to come your way. In the year 2024, there's going to be a lot of roller coasters that pull right up next to you and somebody else is going to be like, get on. And you're going to have the opportunity to either saddle up next to them and buckle up on that ride or you can do it differently. This is a series all about looking at what if we don't have to get on the same ride that we haven't wanted to get on in the first place in the year to come and in our lives right now? What if we could do that differently? It's asking ourselves that question. What if we don't have to do that? And for the sake of today, the question that I want to ask in particular is, 
What if Christ is the thing that makes the difference between us getting on that ride or not? What if Christ is actually the thing that can help us so that we don't engage or enter into things the same way that we never wanted to do in the first place altogether? I don't know what the ride will look like for you. I don't know what it's gonna be. But what if Christ is the answer? What if Christ is that difference maker as we move into this? You know, a long time ago, I was sitting at a picnic table at Pima Community College, um, and it, I, I just had my classes scheduled. I went there for two semesters, had my classes scheduled where there was a big gap between two of them, so I just had a lot of time to kill. I'm sitting at a picnic table with four students that I'd made friends with along the way. I don't remember what we were talking about. I do remember what we chose to fill our time with, um, and that was making fun of everybody around us. We did. We just sat there like students looking around at all the other students and people navigating and gathering. And we just were making fun of people and laughing at people and anybody who was different or things or whatever. We were just kind of telling jokes about and giving a hard time. That's what we were doing in that era of life. And, and I remember we all, I can't remember what was even said. We just all burst into laughter at the same time and I'm laughing with them and eventually the laughter dies down. And one of my friends who's sitting at the table, one of these other students, he looks over at me and he's smiling and he says, Ryan, when I first found out that you were a Christian and that you believed in like Jesus and went to church and all that stuff, I didn't really want to hang out with you because I was worried you'd be all churchy and weird. Um, and then there, he said, he smiled back and he's like, but to be honest, I think I could go to your church because you're just as bad as the rest of us. You talk as much trash and say as much things as the rest of us do. And he meant this as a great compliment to me. And he just sat there smiling, nodding his head. I had a very different reaction to this particular moment. I sat there a little caught off guard. You ever have that moment where you, you realize something, you don't know what to do and you're in public. I just sat there smiling awkwardly, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do. But inside my brain was just starting to turn. My heart was starting to turn. This became one of the first moments in my life where I started to wrestle with this question. Well, shouldn't Jesus make a difference? This is when this occurred. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to be a part of a church that anybody can come to, that everybody feels accepted. I think that's part of the heart of God for people. Why wouldn't that be a part of his church with people? I think that that's huge, but that's not what he was saying, was it? No, what he was saying is, Ryan, when I look at you, it doesn't feel like the beliefs that you hold in the church you go to and things you, it doesn't feel like any of that really matters because you talk and act just like the rest of us. Like, you know, it, it feels a little bit irrelevant. And I started to just wrestle with this. Well, shouldn't? Christ make a difference. I can recall that converse, that, that moment, not what we talked about, but that moment because it hit me square in the chest. And I wanted today to actually ask you the same question I did that he asked me all that, or that I was asking myself, I'm sorry, all that time ago. And it's this, shouldn't Christ make a difference? And I mean that when you think about your own lives, right? The way you see the world, the way you engage people, shouldn't Christ make a difference. Now, as I ask you that question, here's what I think I know is going to happen because you're people like me. Some of you are going to probably right now, probably right now you're already feeling a little bit of weight heaped on your shoulders. Like maybe I just said, are you doing good enough? <laughs> are you doing this right? And, and, and feeling that. I want you to set that to the side for the moment. What I'm not actually saying is, man, if we believe in Jesus, if we follow Jesus, shouldn't we be sinning less, doing better? Like everybody do better. That's not a good sermon. It's not. And that's not even the question that I'm actually asking. The question I'm asking is, guys, if Christ is in us, if we're followers of Christ, right? Yeah, we're going to make mistakes. Yeah, we're going to get some things wrong. Yeah, we're going to struggle in relationships with people, ourselves and all the things because we're human beings. But shouldn't our compass be different? 
right? When it comes to how we approach people, our lives, the world, if Christ is in us, right, if that's our guide, shouldn't, shouldn't our compass be a little bit different? Does Jesus make a difference? Think about it. Does Jesus make a difference in how we see and how we treat people, right? When you think about that in your own life, what about the people you don't like? What about the people who disagree with you? What about the people who frustrate you? What about the people that are your enemy? Because it seems obvious that that's who they are. They even see you that way. Does Jesus make a difference there? Is it the same old roller coaster, the same old ride? Does Jesus make a difference in how we approach family and relationships, right? Does Jesus make a difference there? What about the family that you don't get along with really well or that's hard to be around, right? I mean, we're just on this side of the holidays, so it's probably a little too soon to have this conversation, but what about that? What about the people who frustrate you? What about the family that's hurt you? What about the family who annoys you and you see things so differently? Does Jesus make a difference? Does Jesus make a difference in how we approach our workplaces and the people in them? What about the coworker who doesn't do their job and I have to do a lot more work because of it? What about the people in my work that gossip and they gossip about me sometimes or they're backbiting? Or what about the person who takes credit for the work that I do? And that's frustrating. What a... What about those moments and those people? Does Jesus make a difference? Or is it the same old roller coaster as everybody else? Does Jesus make a difference in how we approach politics and how we perceive people on the opposite side of whatever dividing line it is that we find ourselves on? I was talking to a pastor of church in this last year, uh, and he made this comment offhanded to me. I don't think he meant it to be profound, but for me, it, it was profound as I started to listen to it. And he basically said this, he goes, you know, in these last couple of years, what's become really, really easy is to tell who's a Republican and who's a Democrat, who's a liberal and who's a conservative. And it's gotten, but he said, but it's gotten a lot harder to tell what it means to to be a follower of Jesus. What I thought was really profound about that statement was what he's saying is, man, the defining characteristics of people seem like, like Jesus isn't mattering as much as some of these other pieces and things in terms of how we live our lives and engage these things. I thought a lot about that. When you look at your life, does Jesus make a difference? And if you really get honest with that question, maybe the other question to ask is, well, should he? Could he? Friends, I believe that when we let Jesus make a difference in us, he also begins to make a difference through us, which starts to look different to the world around us. I do. I'm going to say that again. I believe that when we let Jesus make a difference in us, he starts to make a difference through us, which starts to look different to the world around us. And I think this is so incredibly important. In fact, I believe that if we're going to spend less time in the year 2024 getting on the same old roller coasters, on the same old rides and the same old things in our lives that we don't want to be on in the first place, then it's going to be absolutely essential that we take a step back and we center ourselves and we let Jesus be the difference. We let Jesus make that difference. And I think it's significant, but I think it's in you more than you could possibly know. You know, there's actually a moment in the New Testament that talks really overtly about this. And I will be candid. I haven't heard very many sermons preached on this in the last couple of years here. And I think it's because it's an uncomfortable section of scripture. I do. And I'll also be candid. I was a little nervous about picking this passage to teach with you all today because 
it sits square with so many things that we might be wrestling with or might be dealing with as just a people in the world around us. But I think it's really, really important. In fact, I think this is one of those passages that might just be one of the most important, but one of the most challenging things that we could walk through together here this morning. So I want to do that together. And as we do, here's what, here's where I want to go. This passage is found in the book of Titus. Okay. And if you've never read Titus, you can turn there. It's found after Second Timothy. It's in your New Testament. Titus is a really short book. We're going to go to Titus chapter 3. It's a really, really short book, and it's written uh, by the Apostle Paul. But this chapter and this passage is written specifically about how to engage the world around us when people don't see like us, think like us, agree like us, or are different than we are right? Because they don't share the same value system, whatever it is. How do you then as a church or as people who are followers of Christ with Jesus at the center, how do you then engage? What do you do? How do you treat people? Titus chapter three. Now, let me give you some background before we read the passage here. So Titus is written by Paul. Uh, And Paul, at this particular time, I believe it's supposed to be written around 60 AD, his estimates, uh, he's just gotten out of his first imprisonment. Paul's a guy who went to prison a couple of times. And the reason he went to prison a couple of times is because he would often preach or he'd engage people and other people disagreed with him and they didn't like some of the things that that he was preaching because they believed in a different religion or or saw that as threatening or whatever that might be. And so they'd chase him out of town or there'd be an uprising or there'd be all these things. And then the authorities, right, the Roman officials, the government, the civil authorities at that time would go, we can't have unrest. We can't do this. And so they bring him on trial. They'd put him in prison and they'd lock him up. And now the problem's dealt with. Like we don't have chaos in our city and our town anymore. And so Paul gets locked up on this first imprisonment and he's just gotten out of prison. And this isn't like a nice, I don't think there's nice prisons probably, but like this is a Roman prison. This is a hard place to be. This isn't a great place to be locked away in. And and so he gets released. Well, at the same time, there is this group of new believers, these group of people that have put their faith in Jesus Christ on the Greek island of Crete, right? It's a little island, small group of believers in Christ, and they're trying to figure out, what do we do? How do we start this movement of a church? And what's this look like? And Paul says, Titus, who's a friend of his, Titus, I want you to go to Crete, and I want you to help provide leadership there, and I want you to help get them going. Like, I want you to help organize them and help them anchor into the things that matter most. And so Titus is this really short book, just three chapters long, written by Paul to Titus, basically saying, hey, here's some things to think on. Titus chapter one is basically, when you're going to put leadership in your church, here's the qualifications for those leaders, and I want them to be anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what this means. Titus chapter two, when it comes to what you teach doctrine and the things that you hold dear to, let Jesus be at the center of this thing. Like hold true to this gospel. Don't, don't go different directions and, and let Christ be that which matters, right? Let this be the course of your teaching. And then you get to Titus chapter three, where you find our, where we find ourselves today. And it's when you look at the world around you, when you look at all the people who aren't a part of your church or, or aren't part of this new movement, who don't agree with you, don't believe the same with you, who operate in different ways. Here is how to engage. Here's what I want you to hold at the center of your engagement here and what to do, which makes this a very potent passage for us to read. And so I want us to turn there. Titus chapter three, verse one. Let's start reading together. It says, remind them being the church, right? This is written to Titus. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let me pause before we continue. 
I'm going to walk through this whole section of scripture, several verses. We're literally going to walk through it verse by verse over the course of this morning here. And, and it may get to a space where you go, this isn't making sense quite yet. And part of it is because Paul's logic jumps around as he goes. And we're going to explain it all out as we go. Here's what I promise you. If you get to a spot where you go, but that doesn't make sense. I promise in the end, I'm going to look back at the whole thing and you'll see the whole big picture and you'll go, got it. This makes sense now. So bear with me, hang with me as we unpack it. Okay. All right. So given what we just read in verses one and two, Paul begins by telling people what to do, right? He says, remind them. That's the very first thing uh, that he says. He says, Titus, remind them. Now this is different than the kind of reminder my wife gives me when she goes, Hey, you're going to the the, um, store today. Make sure you get milk or eggs or whatever that is. And then I buy the milk, I buy the eggs, I check off the reminder and I never have to get reminded again, right? That's not what this is. When it says remind them, this is written in a grammatical form called the present imperfect tense. If you don't care, that's okay. All it means though, is that this is just ongoing, continuous action. So when it says remind them, what he's saying is remind them and then remind them tomorrow and then remind them next week and then remind them next month. This is this idea of this is one of those things that we continually, regularly need to be reminded of and that Titus, I want you to keep bringing this back up. I want you to keep reminding the people of this. And why do they need a continual reminder? Well, they're like me. They're like you because we forget things, don't we? And sometimes we get it wrong and sometimes we veer off course and sometimes we make mistakes in our lives and, and sometimes it's actually pretty nice for somebody to come along and be like, hey, you're like five degrees off course and what would happen if you step back into what matters most here? We need those moments in our lives. And so he's saying continually remind them, but what is it that he says to remind them of? And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. I need to pause again. And it's because this is not a real popular verse. Uh, It's not. And I think it's because there's a lot of misunderstandings about this verse. I think it's probably tempting for a lot of us to read this. Like Paul is saying, keep your head down. Whatever a leader tells you to do, you just do that. You don't have an opinion of your own and you're just, you know, whatever that thing is, go, go do that. Be a good boy. Like that type of a thing. It's really easy to read this. Be submissive, be obedient, be kind, do the things, do good works. That's what it is. Don't have an opinion. Follow whatever a government leader, a boss leader, any leader and authority in your life tells you to do. And you're like, should I really just be blind? Should I really just engage? And so I think people skip over this first. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Right? Keep in mind, and here's how you can know this. Keep in mind, guys, this is Paul we're talking about. I don't know if you've read much of the New Testament. If you haven't, it's okay. Paul is probably the most stubborn and obstinate writer in the entire Bible. He's a giant pain in the butt. He, he, I hope it's okay to say that. He is. Like, he, he really, really is. Go read through 2 Corinthians and, and you just see it. Like, he is, he is overt and he is opinionated and he says things. In fact, if he just was saying, I just need you to like, you know, agree with whatever and do whatever, would he be getting out of prison? Think about it. He's been arrested by the civil authorities at this particular point because of the way that he was preaching the gospel and the way that he was going about these things. And they, they clearly locked him up. So Paul does have his like priorities and his order of hierarchy and all these different things. So what he's not saying is don't have an opinion and obey whatever it is that you're told at all points in time, even if what you're told goes against what God has for you. Because Paul doesn't even live that way. That would contradict everything else that he does and says. So that's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? Well, it's actually there in the verse. It's continue to seek their good. Continue to live in such a way where with the rulers and the authorities and the people around you that you're continuing to seek their good. You're continuing to try to bring about these good things. And also think about this. In verse two, it's just a continuation. So 
you may not realize this, your Bible's not written with chapters and verses. It's just not. That's something that got added way later to help us make sense of the whole thing and find our way around. This is a letter written to people. Have you ever written a letter to somebody and you're like, actually, in my letter, could you pull it out and turn to verse six? It's not a thing. Like, this is one cohesive letter. There's not actually three chapters when it was originally written or any of that stuff. That just helps us make sense of it. In verse one and verse two, there's not even a period here. This is all one sentence. When he continues on into verse two, in the very same sentence, suddenly the perspective shifts away from just religious leaders, or, or I'm sorry, rulers and authorities, to now he looks and he says, B, do not speak evil of anyone. And I looked at that. I'm like, I wonder what that could mean if it's like leaders and authorities or whatever. And I looked it up in the Greek and anyone means anyone. That's what it means. Like it, it's exactly that. Do not speak evil of anyone. And all of a sudden the perspective on this sentence is started with rulers and authorities and it broadens out to your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, the people in your life, the community around you, the larger city around you, the people and things around you. Do not speak evil of anyone. This wasn't just about the Roman emperor, the governor, the representatives. This was also about their neighbors. This was also about their people. Do not speak evil of anyone. And it goes on. And it says avoid quarreling, avoid being combative, uh, more or less. And, and, and it's joined with, but continue to remind them to be gentle, Right? So in the way that you handle and you treat one another and show perfect courtesy to all people. When it says show courtesy, that word show is, is to put on display. So if I were to ask most of us, are, are you a courteous, courteous person? You'd probably answer like me, where you're like, well, yeah, I think I'm a courteous person. Yeah, for the most part. I'm sure I have my moments, but yeah, I think I'm a courteous. This isn't what that's getting at. What it's saying is show courtesy. So it's saying operate in such a way where the people in your life around you who perhaps don't agree with the same things that you might even agree with or see things the way that you see experience you treating them with courtesy. They actually get to experience that themselves. Show them this thing, right? This is this list that he says to them. And then we get to verse three, verse three shifts. And this first part is like, hey, when it comes to rulers, authorities, people in your life and all this stuff, here's, here's how to treat them. And then it shifts from looking outside yourself to now looking at your own history, to looking inside of ourselves. Verse three, it says, for we ourselves were once foolish. He goes, for you, for me, for us, we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. Can I be honest with you? When I first read this in study, I read that, because when Paul writes this, we're supposed to identify with it. He's saying we, like, you know, we were like this. And my very first thought was like, was not. I know that's weird, but I was of some of these things, but not all of these things. And I, I just started to look and be like, well, no, and this feels like a pretty condemning list. And man, really? And I started to wrestle with it. And here's the truth. If, if you're like me and you're sitting here going, well, I'm not going to identify. I mean, I have a hard time identifying with some of those things. It's not as crazy as you might think. Let me unpack it. Here's all Paul is saying. Paul's saying, you know, once we were foolish, all he means by that is there was a time where you didn't understand spiritual things either. There was a time where your, your head and your heart just didn't make sense of all of that either. And so consequently, you made decisions based on other things, just like a normal human being would. At one point in time, we were foolish. At one point in time, we were disobedient to God. You know, there was a time where maybe you didn't know or understand what it meant to have Christ in you and and, and to be directed to love the people and things around you. And so you made different choices than that. And you walked in a different direction. And of course you would. Of course any of us would, right? Because 
At one point in time, we made mistakes and we treated others differently. We were disobedient. Or what about this? We were led astray. This isn't like at one point in time, you followed a cult leader into something weird. It's not that, right? All this is saying is right now, hopefully your heart is in tune with Christ and ultimately he's the one in person, the, the, you know, God leading your life and that that's where you're being led. But maybe it wasn't always that way. Maybe there's an error of time in your life where you followed the loudest voice or the other thing in front of you or whatever seemed most compelling at the particular moments. And that's all it's getting at. We all know what it is to be led astray. Or maybe there's moments where we were won over to our passions and pleasures. You know, if, if your life is not ultimately about like, well, I want to love others the way that Christ loved me, then, then you don't have this compass inside of you always saying, but I want to choose what's best for other people. And I want to live a life larger than my own life. And it makes perfect sense to say, well, I just want to live for my own life. And that's what my... My compass is, and that's normal. It's just how this is. That's all he's saying. He's saying, Paul's looking, he's going, as human beings, guys, remember what it's like to be a human? Remember what it's like to just be a normal person? And do you remember what it's like to be confused and to have foolish moments and to be disobedient? Do you remember what it was like to not have Christ be the anchoring, guiding compass in you? Do you remember what it's like to be a human? He's saying, that's just how it is sometimes. And then Paul says, and it starts in verse four. There's this significant word. It says, but, right? But something significant occurred. Something monumental happened. Something occurred that transformed the entire conversation, the entire thing. I want to read that with you. Titus three, verse four, it says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you got lost in the language, again, I promise you, we're going to unpack this for just a moment. Right? I want you to pay special attention to the contrast between verse three that we read previously and verse four. Verse three came in and was like, yeah, but remember what it was like for you. Like at one point in time, we were all foolish. At one point in time, you know, we didn't understand spiritual things. At one point in time, we, we experienced disobedience and different things. At one point in time, we looked at other people like enemies and, and treated them with hatred and malice and other stuff too, because they were frustrating us. At one point in time, we engaged and acted in, in all of that. That's kind of where we were at one point in time too. And then all of a sudden, Verse four starts and it goes, but that's not how Christ treated you. But that's actually not the way that Jesus engaged you, right? We were met with goodness and the loving kindness of God. We were met with the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. We Right? Jesus didn't shove our heads underwater in condemnation. He paddled out to us, gave us a hand, and pulled us into a boat. Like This is what we, in our own very real lives, have been met with. And then Paul makes it clear. He goes, and this isn't somehow because you prove that you're actually better than other people who make worse decisions than you do. He says, no, none of this was by your own righteousness at all. And what's the reference point? What's he say? He goes, no, this was because of who God is, because of his goodness, because of his loving kindness. Because of his heart to show mercy and his desire to do this, he acted out of who he is, not based on what you did, right? So instead of sending us condemnation and conviction, what did he do? He sent the greatest love letter in the history of humanity, and it's called the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This is the action that God took in those moments. 
And let's think about this. Jesus not only loved us in his life, right? You're not just loved by a being who existed 2,000 years ago and you're just holding on to the memory. Jesus loved us with his life and he loves us even still, right? At that point in time, he entered into a system of sacrifice that was common in the day, not just common to Christianity or Judaism at that point in time, but, but common, right? Like to other religions and things, sacrifice was a very, very normal thing. Whereas when somebody did something wrong or they made a mistake of some kind, it was believed that they now had that on them or that they were somehow bad and that that needed to be punished or atoned for. And it was always through the shedding of blood of some kind. And so they, they'd sacrifice innocent animals. It was a normal part of cultural exchange in that moment. It was a normal part of the Judaic religion. And Jesus enters into the middle of that system. He enters right in the middle of it as the last sacrifice. And he essentially with one loud voice that is echoed throughout the times says, look at me, all eyes focus on me and watch as I take your sin upon me, as I take the hurt upon me, as I take the things that think you, that you might think cut you off from God upon me. And he, he dies taking that all with him, essentially saying, I'll be the last sacrifice so that no blood ever needs to be shed again. And so that you can stand firmly in the new life that you had. So put your faith in me and know that you're as close to God as you could possibly be. You're as loved as you could possibly be. You're as anchored in as you could possibly be because of who Christ is. This is what it means, right? When it talks about in this passage, what is it in verse four? When it talks about our save, when God, our savior appeared. This is what it's referencing and calling to mind. And so people did, they began to put their faith in him. Jesus came and he lived and he died. And as people became, began to put, and he rose again. As they began to put their faith in him, this wasn't just a moment that kind of like changed a little bit of the direction of their life. This started to change their internal compass. It started to change who they were because God leaves what's called his helper, the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you as you walk in this faith-based relationship with him. Because there's moments in life where you don't know what to do. And there's moments in life where you're not sure how this is going to work out. And I know it's frustrating that there's not always a rule or not always a thing that says do exactly this all of the time. But the Holy Spirit is there to, to guide and to help us navigate. And Christ has made his home in us as there's this compass in us and the Spirit to guide us. And, and that's what it means, actually, when it says, I believe it's in, in verse 7, this, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, right? We trust him with our past, our present, our future, and we hold on to that hope in our now as we live powerfully out of it. And this changes who we, and how we are. This becomes this powerful thing. And he's saying, this was the significant moment that happened to you. So if you're lost in this whole passage, now's the time where we're going to summarize this. Let's look back from what we've walked through. Let's look at the passage at large. See the whole thing that we've walked through here and let's make sense of it together. It says this. I think this is Paul saying, you might think of rulers and authorities and people around you outside of your faith systems and different things who disagree with you and operate differently than you. You might think that they look like or act like fools. You might think they're foolish. You might think that they're disobedient or led astray or selfishly pursuing their own agendas or desires. You might look at them as people who are bad or people who are evil. And, and you might even want to use that to find yourself wanting to be against them and wanting bad things to happen to them. And you may even go so far as to treat them like your enemy. You may want to do all of those things. You may see it. You may feel it. You may know that. But Paul says, don't forget. Don't forget that you would be the same way if the love of Christ hadn't transformed your heart. Don't forget that you might be walking down some of the same paths in some of the same ways if something wasn't so profound inside you that your compass oriented itself a little differently now. 
Don't forget that you might be running down some of those, those same roads and some of those same ways if Christ hadn't so profoundly loved you and continues to profoundly love you. And you might be just as easily confused or led astray, right? If the Holy Spirit wasn't there to guide you in the moments where you struggle and don't know what to do and you hadn't experienced that transformation or regeneration, if you weren't holding on to hope in the same type of way. So that in the moments, right? Think of this. In the moments that God could have looked at you in the same way that you're tempted to look at someone else who disagrees with you, he saw you with grace and compassion. To quote the passage, he saw you with goodness and loving kindness and he extended his heart towards, of mercy towards you because that was his desire for you. In the moments that God could have condemned you or me, he, he could have chastised you, could have chastised this church and creed or convicted us. He lived out of his own loving kindness. He centered himself in who he is, right? As he moved towards us to love us. This becomes really significant. In the moment he could have judged us, we weren't met with judgment. We were met with relationship. We were met with grace and we were met with sacrifice. This is Paul saying the same way that Jesus has made a profound difference in you is the same way I want you to operate with the world around you. <clears throat> I don't want you to take the gift for yourself and then cut everyone else off from that same gift. I want you to take the gift from yourself for yourself and then say the same thing that is so dear and precious and valuable to me. I have that same heart now. And part of my job and role in this life and in this world is to be a person who gives it away because of living, breathing expression of it. Right. In case we're confused, says this is the difference. In case we're confused, Christ makes a difference. Christ has made the difference. And he's saying, let Christ be that which continues to make the same difference in the world around you as you go to engage it. And in case we're confused about, well, how might that practically look? Like that, what's that mean? Well, that's part of what he's getting at in verse one and also reinforcing in verse eight. I wanna read verse one and two again, where he says, remind them, right? Titus, remind them again and again and again to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Keep seeking the good of the people and the things around you. Keep seeking the good uh, for people. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And then he gets to verse eight, which is right after all the stuff that we just unpacked and explained. And look at how he references all of it. This, he says, the saying is trustworthy. All the stuff we've been talking about, you can take it to the bank. That's what he's saying. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Be direct, be clear, be overt. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And it doesn't say be a, it doesn't be a better person. It means to continually seeking the good of the world around you and the people around you and caring about them in the same way that God cared for you. These things are what are excellent and profitable for people. These are the things that make a difference because it's the very thing that's made a difference in you. Don't stop loving people in the world around you and genuinely seeking their good. I say this to you all as a church as a body of believers who are following with their lives and hearts anchored in Jesus Christ with a compass aligned towards the heart of Christ. I say this to you guys again. Don't stop loving people in the world around you and genuinely desiring their good. Don't let that go. Don't let that up. You know, in your families and friendships, there's gonna be people who disagree with you. There are. Some of you guys are making eye contact right now. Right? It's gonna be people who are different than you. It's going to be people who disagree with you. They're going to be people who frustrate you. It's going to be generational divides with different perspectives and opinions. 
And that can be really hard. You don't have to get on the same ride. Here's my challenge to you. Love them. And I mean that. And what I'm not saying is just be nice. No, love them genuinely. The way that Christ has loved you, that same transformative way that Christ just pours out his love on you with this relentless kind of love, the same thing. Love them, right? And keep hoping, keep seeking their good, right? Because that's what makes a difference. That's what's made a difference in you. In your workplace, there's gonna be people who annoy you, right? There are. Some of you immediately had people pop into your head the moment I said that, I promise. There's gonna be people who annoy you. There's gonna be people who frustrate you. There's gonna be bosses that you cannot stand because you feel like they just don't see you or their expectations are ridiculous. You're gonna have all kinds of moments. We, we know this. It's just part of life and work and things. There's gonna be all of those things, but Christ makes a profound difference in this, friends, Right? You can base how you respond on their actions or you can follow Christ's lead and you can base your response on who you are and on who Christ is in you. Not letting your compass be dictated by something outside of you, but operating firmly and squarely because of Jesus Christ who is in you. And what would that have you do? See, that's not getting on the same roller coaster. That's an entirely different path. You can love them. I don't know what it'll look like. Maybe it's having the conversation you need to have, but also not seeing them as a terrible person or your enemy or as a horrible thing that's cut off, but loving them, continuing to seek their good. And yeah, it takes work. This is hard stuff. I I don't say this like, I've got this all figured out and I'm rocking it. So if you could just get on my level, this is really hard stuff. I'm not great at this all the time. You'll see in a little bit. To the students in the room. I mean this, to the students in the room. High school and middle school can be a blast. I, it's, I, I love students and I love just student ministries and all that. But it can also be so hard, can it? Yeah, it can be a giant pain in the butt. It really can. It can be so hard. And the reason why is because in that era of life, so many people start binding in like factions and groups and you start tearing one another down and you start trying to be cool. And if you're not cool, it's terrible and all this other stuff. And, and it's so frustrating all the time. I, like that can be such a pain. I know this is going to happen. You're going to find yourselves in moments where there are people in your schools and in your communities that, that just start tearing other people apart. And you can get on that same roller coaster with them, but you don't have to get on that ride. You can anchor yourself with Christ in you. And by the way, as I'm talking to students, adults do this too. Just go to their workplaces and spy on them. You'll see it, right? We all do. We're human beings. It's normal. You don't have to get on that same ride. You can actually look and be like, what does it mean for Christ to be in me? And me to say, I'm just going to anchor myself in that. I'm not going to allow those actions to dictate my actions. I want to anchor myself in the love and grace that God's given me because that's the gift I most want for other people in this world. How do I give that away? You can do that, right? Don't stop wanting good things for other people because God is never going to stop wanting good things for you. Hold that heart. And for all of us, this next year is an election year. If you didn't know, surprise. 2024 is an election year. I don't know if you remember the last one or the one before that. They were hard. They were kind of awful. That's my opinion, but that's how I, that's, I, I think they were. I think they're really hard. You know, let me predict what's going to happen this year. And I'm not, I don't mean I'm going to predict who's going to get elected. I don't, I don't know uh, on any of that. Let me predict what's going to happen this year. This year, Americans are going to catalyze around a series of issues. They are. More so even than they have. And they're going to grow increasingly frustrated and angry at all the people who don't agree with them. As a people, we're going to treat people like whoever's on the other side of whatever equation it is that we are, are foolish and terrible, that they're dumb or stupid and led astray. We're going to say terrible things about one another 
right? As a people, we're going to say terrible things about one another. And we're going to perceive that other person as evil. And perceiving them as evil is actually going to help us justify the way we talk about them and the actions we hold towards them. We're going to get in arguments that divide families. Some of us are going to find that that phone call to that family member is harder to make this year than it was last year. We're going to find long-term friendships that stop talking to each other this year because some issue suddenly became bigger than the years that bound you together. We're going to tune into news channels that reinforce what we already think. And we're going to find that the more that we watch them, the more we begin to just be absolutely intolerant of any beliefs or anything outside of what it is that we hold. And we're going to judge really hardly on the other side of that equation. And when all of that's done, at the end of the day, somebody's going to get elected and then we're going to have to deal with all of that too. I am not a prophet. I am a historian. I'm serious. This is not me going... Like, you know, here's the doomsday prediction of the year. This is me saying, I've watched the last two. Why would this be different? Is there an indicator around us or in us that this is suddenly going to go different, right? This is the roller coaster that might pull its way up to the station in this last year. And can I just tell you as a church, we don't have to get on the same ride, friends. It's part of my goal. And do you know why? Because Christ makes a difference. And I mean this. I'm not saying avoid politics like an ostrich with your head in the sand. Nor am I going to tell you who to vote for or any of that. We're not a socio-political church. It's not my job, right? My job is to talk about Jesus Christ and anchor ourselves in him. That's what we are, right? But you don't have to get on the same ride. You can engage meaningfully. You can engage with care. You don't have to get on the same ride because Christ makes a difference. Because when our compass wasn't aligned to the unconditional love of God, God still sought to love us right where we were. Because Christ opens up our eyes to our fellow human beings to see that they are dearly loved and made in the image of God. And we get to show up with the heart of Christ and treat them that way. And because it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, a quote straight out of the scriptures, and not the condemnation of God, we just get to keep pouring out more and more love the same way that Christ won our hearts and sought our hearts and transformed us from the inside out. And we get to help people figure out that there is a compass out there that provides hope, not just for now, but for always, regardless of how this last, this next year goes, right? We get to unswervingly hold to want good things for people. Why? Because God continually and relentlessly wants good things for us. You know, I've told many of you this story before, and I'm going to close with this story. Um, And so if you're familiar with it, I apologize. But I I went to school in Chicago. And when I first got there, uh, I wasn't used to people approaching me on the streets at all points in time to ask me for money or things or all this stuff. And and there weren't any laws about any of that at that point. So you just, it it would happen a lot. On one particular day, uh, I was walking down the street and I saw somebody and I just thought, oh, they're probably going to ask for for money. I'm going to avoid them or I'm not going to do this because it, you know, this would happen like 10 times a day, like per journey that I would go someplace at that point in time. But this one was so different. This woman runs up to me. She's in a panic. She has tears in her eyes and she's in an absolute panic. And she says, you got to help me. Can somebody please help me? And she grabs me by both shoulders and she shakes me. And she says, I am pregnant and I'm bleeding and I think I'm going to lose my baby. And, and I don't, like, I, I'm trying to get to Northwestern Hospital and I don't think I'm going to get there in time and I don't have any money to get a cab. And I, I looked at her and I'm like, wait, 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 slow down. This was really unsettling. You have to understand. If you can imagine somebody running up to you on the streets, shaking you, and then in great distress saying this to you while they're kind of buckled over, like, this is a, this was a harder moment. And I looked and I was like, wait, 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 slow down. What's going on? 
What, like, what, what do you need? And she's like, I just need some money for cab first so I can get to Northwestern before I lose my baby. Will you help me? She's crying. And, and I, you have to understand at this point in time, I'm, I'm poor. I, I don't have a job. I'm taking tons of credits as a student. And I reach into my wallet and I give her the last $20 bill in my wallet because I think that's about how much the cab fare will be to go to Northwestern. I was like, this is all I have. And I hailed a cab for her and she got in the cab and I said, take her to Northwestern. She's like, you know, she might be losing a baby. She's having pregnancy complications. You got to get her over there as fast as you possibly can. And the cab cab sped off. It was so jarring. As the cab drove away, I just found myself praying. Like, God, you know, just please keep her safe. I pray for a child. Like, I pray for her, whatever circumstances are going on in her life. Pray for the doctors. I'm just like, you know, when you don't know what else to do, you're like, I just, this is bigger than me. I'm going to, I need to ask God here. And she drove off. Two weeks later, I'm walking down the same street, Wells, Wells Avenue in Chicago, downtown Chicago. And the same lady comes running up to me in absolute distress, grabs me by both shoulders and says, I'm losing my baby and I need cab fare to get to Northwestern Hospital. And I realize I've been conned and I'm so angry because I feel stupid, right? That I, and that was my last $20. I know that may not sound like a ton to you guys at that point in my life. Like that was, that was a big deal for me to give that woman my last 20 bucks. And I was so frustrated and all of these things. And I just walked off. I was like, no, and I ignored her. I watched her do this so many times that year. Sometimes I'd be walking on the opposite side of the street and I'd see somebody else walking and, and she'd do the same thing and you just watch it happen. They'd give her money. She'd get in the cab, go around the corner and immediately the cab would pull over. She'd get out, cab driver's yelling at her and she walks away with the money and would repeat the process and do the same thing over again. And this was just like a daily routine. And I was frustrated because it's wrong. It's not right. And I was lied to and it was deceitful and this isn't okay. She shouldn't be doing this. And so, oh, I just felt angry and self-righteous and kind of embarrassed and all of these different things. I get married and a year later, my wife moves out to Chicago with me. She's walking down the street to work down Walls Avenue. A woman comes running up, grabs her by both shoulders, shakes her, really drawing experience. My wife gives her money and takes off, does the same thing. My wife comes home and is sitting at dinner with me that night and she tells me the story and I'm like, you were conned. Me too. It's very angry and I'm very frustrated. I can't believe she does this. Like, oh, she's the worst. That's what I, you know, she's the worst. Two weeks later, without fail, my wife's walking down the street to work. Woman comes, runs up, grabs her by both shoulders and shakes her. And my wife's response was so different. I have to back up because here's, here's what you need to know. A year before this, a friend's parents came into town. We're all walking to dinner. And there's a whole group of us and I'm at the back of this crowd and the parents are at the front and the same lady ran up to her parents and I saw it and all that anger and all that like, you know, self-righteousness and everything else bubbled up in me and I'm like, justice and let's do this and I'm gonna point it out. I'm gonna call. So I literally was like, nobody talk to her while, you know, leave her alone, I'll take care of this. And these well-to-do people all look at me like, Ryan, what is wrong with you? She is clearly in need of help. And I'm like, just keep walking, I've got this. And then I go up to her and I'm like, no one is going to give you money today. We're not gonna do this and like, you know, leave us alone. And as I walk away, she goes, so what about my baby? What are you going to do? You're just going to leave me and you don't care about my baby. And I turned and looked back at her and I said, I guess we're just going to have to let the baby die. And then I, I I know guys, this is not like a proud moment. Suddenly I am the character. Suddenly I am the person in verse three. Do you hear it? I know it's jarring. You weren't expecting that, but I did, but it happens. I'm not proud of that. That's my response. I turn back and I look at this whole group of people who are standing on the sidewalk and they all look at me 
Like I'm a monster. And I'm like, you don't understand. This is a con. And, these are the, and they're like, we get that, Ryan, but that was a lot. <laughs> Suddenly there's that question rolling around in my head and in my heart again. Shouldn't Christ make a difference? Shouldn't this be different in me and through me and around me? My wife has the same moment. And she runs up and stops her again. And Amber could lash out because this was hard. And she was frustrated and she felt duped. She doesn't. Instead, she just turns to the woman and she goes, what is there that's going on? Can I ask you a question? What is there that's going on in your life right now? What are you walking through that this is how you have to make money? Do, do you need help? Is there something Is there something someone needs to know? And all of a sudden you watch the woman just drop the act and everything begins to change and she braces herself to be defensive and then she hears my wife's words and just softens and the woman begins to share a story with my wife and my wife prays with her. And she says, you know, I'm having a hard time and, and I haven't been able to get a job because I don't even have clothes to get a job. And my wife looks at her and goes, you know, I do have a pair of clothes that might fit you if you want them to, to use for that purpose. I, and the woman said, that would be amazing. And she goes, I'll meet you here in a week if you want for that. And she goes, okay, cool. And my wife shows up with the clothes and the woman never came. But I don't think that that changes the way we responded and what was right there at all. I based my response off this woman's actions to justify my behavior. And I didn't seek her good. I saw her as the enemy and I wanted to squash her into the ground. My wife looked at her and said, you know, the same love that Christ has in me. I just, I see you and I want to know you. And there's a God who wants to know you. And I'd love to pray for you. And I wonder if there's something that you might need. Do you see the profound difference? Christ makes the difference. And so friends, you don't have to get on whatever ride comes your way this year just because it comes your way. You don't. You can do this differently. You can let Christ make the difference in you. And you're going to find that he makes a difference through you and that that becomes different in the world around you. My prayer for you, which is the same prayer I have, is that in this next year, we would get to choose right here, right now, what we center our hearts and our lives on as we step into this year. And you know what my prayer for you is? That your heart would be absolutely centered in Jesus Christ. And that the same way he loves you, the same way he knows you, the same way he relentlessly engages and pursues you, the same grace and goodness and mercy that he pours out again and again and again upon you would be like a guiding light in you and in us as a church as we seek to engage the world around us. Just because the roller coaster's coming doesn't mean you need to get on the same ride. Let's pray. God, we love you. And I just ask for wisdom this year, uh, not just because it's an election season, just because it's life. <laughs> because of family, because of friends, because of workplaces, because of all of it, Lord. And I just pray for wisdom. Be our anchor. Be our guide. Help us to encourage one another to stay unrelentlessly centered on you. Give us wisdom as we go. And we just trust it all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before you go. Sorry. Before you go, if you're new, I'd love to meet you. I'm going to be over here in this area called the Welcome Party. Also to all of you who signed up for Love Our City. Man, is that encouraging? Keep going. I'm excited to see the way God continues to use us in that event. We'll see you soon, friends.